Welcome to the iMarket podcast by the Marketing Society of Kenya. My name is Waidera Kabiru, also known as a digital diva, your host for season one. In this season, I've invited my friends from the marketing industry in Kenya and around the world to discuss about the role of marketing leadership in digital transformation. These seasoned marketers share their experiences in winning in marketing, as well as how they have failed bravely. We discuss specialist marketing fields such as media and creative, and how digital disruption has impacted connections with consumers. The stories shared in this podcast are great lessons in marketing effectiveness. Marketing in a digital world is a term we have been hearing more frequently since the advent of digital platforms. However, according to the words of Mark Rickson, there's no such thing as a digital strategy, but a marketing strategy. Whilst digital platforms, tools, and technology are great enablers and connectors, we still need to be obsessed with core principles of marketing. I speak to Moses Kemibaro, an early adopter of technology, who I met during the early days when digital was just but a buzzword. Not only is he a visionary, but also an entrepreneur in Kenya, founding Savvy, Kenya's first digital agency that started off as building websites for businesses. Previously, he was a sales director at Oprah Ads, the Perform Group, and in Mobi. He was also the founding regional manager at Dealfish East Africa, which became OLX Kenya and is now known as Gigi Kenya, an e-marketplace. He talks about what the e-commerce opportunity is for Africa today and how logistics and last mile delivery is a key enabler for success. Moses is a multiple award-winning tech blogger and analyst at moseskemibaro.com, where he rants and raves about all things digital in Kenya and Africa. He's also a regular speaker, moderator, and panelist at technology and media events, as well as a seasoned digital marketing trainer. Welcome, Moses, to the first Marketing Society of Kenya's podcast. Really, really happy to have you here. We've known each other for over a decade. Yes. Do you want to remind me when we first met? <laughs> first of all, thank you so much, Waidera, for having me here. It's always a pleasure to be in your presence. Uh, the digital device, we know you. Thank you. <laughs> and yeah, we go back a long way. So the first time we met, I believe, Waidera was... Actually, the first time I noticed you, I think it was back in 2009, we're at the JKIA airport mm -hmm. and we're waiting to board a flight to South Africa. And I'd been, at the time, blogging. Uh, as you know, I have a blog at moseskemibaro.com and I'd been writing a lot of tech uh, content and somehow my content had gotten the attention of the South Africa Samsung uh, MD or CEO and apparently he found this stuff uh, online told his team of people I want this guy to come down for our event which happened to be the event you also attending mm -hmm. and was sitting in this um, you know at the waiting area at the airport ready to go to Johannesburg and right. I remember very vividly hearing a lady talking to me who sounded like a digital marketer because <laughs> the things that she was saying on the phone she was obviously talking to her team back in Nairobi and by the time she was done with the conversation before we boarded, I knew that she worked for Capital. I knew that there was she was briefing them on some deliverables for some clients. And I sort of sat mom and I was thinking to myself, maybe I'm kind of eavesdropping here, but I could get a sense of what she <laughs> You does. were eavesdropping. Yeah. And then I think when we landed in South Africa, that's when, mm -hmm. you know, usually when they hold up, you know, the transfer. Yeah. And I think we're put into the same van or something mm -hmm. and ended up at the same hotel. And I think as we commuted from 
the airport, I think it was to, was it Monte Casino or yeah. one of those hotels in, in Johannesburg? Then we got talking yeah. and sort of got to know that we're all in the digital space. I think when you, you know, similar people, I was yeah. there as a blogger, you were there with Capital. So it's quite interesting because I do remember that uh, conference by Samsung. I had been invited by Robert Ngero, yes. who was the then regional MD for yes. Samsung in yes. Eastern Southern Africa. And um, I remember I was asking you, because I came as Capital FM. Then I asked you, you know, like, who are you? Why are you here? And you told me I'm a blogger. And I was like, what? <laughs> In yeah. 2009. And, and you told me, you know, it was an all expense paid trip. You've come here to blog about the event and the, you know, the products that they're unleashing or launching that day. And I was like, wow, who does, who gets paid to do that? I mean, <laughs> this is the coolest thing ever. So I was already so impressed with you the first time I met you. Yeah, it was very serendipitous. I mean, somehow, you know, the Samsung guys in South Africa found out about me even before the Kenyan guys because wow. they're the ones who reached out to me, started making sure like I got the phones and all. And it was a big conference, as you may recall. You know, Samsung was launching a whole raft of products. I think that was the, yes. the trip when they launched the first uh, edition of the Galaxy. Was it? The, yes. the very first Galaxy was launched That's at that right. particular event. So you were transversing Africa, doing your blog yep. back then. And, and today, you know, we have content creators, we have bloggers who are doing it now. Yet you were doing this, you know, oh, yeah. about 10 years ago. I mean, you, Moses, you're really a visionary. Like, how did you even get there? I mean, let, let's even start with .savvy, one of the first digital agencies. Yeah. How old is .savvy? Well, it depends on how you look at it. If you look at it from when we incorporated, we're actually incorporated on the 28th of November, 2001. Wow. Meaning, incorporation-wise, <laughs> next month will be our 20th year. Wow. In terms of when we started the business, that was sometime in 2002. Okay. And that's when we actually started onboarding clients, doing the business and all that. Were you dreaming about what Dotsavi could do and then you just put it into action? What, what was that like? I think for me, you know, I'm a product of... A family, or my father in particular, was an entrepreneur. He was okay. a civil engineer, and he started his own practice many, many years ago. And I think it was watching him create this business that became very successful, okay. and a practice that you know eventually was able to give us a very good quality of life as a family. Yeah. And I remember you know him telling me once when I was young that you know the most important thing is I never want you guys as 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 the children you know to work for somebody. I want you guys to run your own business and run your own lives in your own capacity so you can be your own boss right. and i don't know why that resonated with me but i remember at a very young age thinking you know what you know dad said we should always try and do our own thing so growing up i remember there was always this ambition or aspiration to start your own thing you know the realization that even if i ever got a job that i want to do my own thing and you know coming through the ranks you know i went through you know companies like africa online and three mice which was arguably the I remember first three mice was yes. yeah one of the first yeah so that was the first like real digital agency in this part of the world and i i was very privileged to work with them for a number of years and it became very clear to me that obviously at some point that the market was bigger than you know one company could handle and i had these ambitions and aspirations to to do it for myself you know so that's but what were you selling back then? Purely websites, pretty much okay. building websites, so building managing websites, websites hosting okay. websites. That was the manifestation of digital at that right, point. Right, it was. And who were your first clients? Because I, I assume oh. these are early adopters, you know? Very interestingly, at the very early stages, I think the bulk of our clients actually were in the tourism space. So it's very much travel right. agents, hotels, okay. uh, because they had the strongest affinity for digital. They were the ones That's selling true. to a global audience that want to do it cost effectively. So we That's essentially true. were helping them build businesses that could go global thanks to websites. So that's where we started from. Yeah, and so Dotsavi is still here today. 
What would you say were some of the challenges you faced? Tell me a story about a crazy challenge you faced back then or, you know, uh, during your journey for .savvy. Something where you're um, like, you know what, looking back, how did I even get through that? I mean, honestly, and I'm just being candid because, you know, people always see the final product and never yeah. see what it took to get there. But there were so many near-death experiences, you know, even as early as two, three years ago, you know, entrepreneurship is not for the light heart. It's not mm-hmm. for the for the you know the lighthearted it's it's serious stuff but i think during the years there's probably one experience in the earlier years that was very profound in that we were literally behind on payroll i think the the phone lines in the office had been cut off because those days you know phones were in the office and we had a client one of the airlines and we literally walked in that room and were like just praying that they'd approve the concept and agree to pay us the coming week. But it was so funny because we were so broke. I think we literally had just put in our last money in the car and the fuel to get to the meeting at Wilson Airport. And the lady who's the operations, almost like she read our mind and she was like, okay, um, boss is approved. Do you want us to pay you? And I'm like, yeah, sure. You know, check. I imagine. <laughs> no, no. So we actually got some cash here. Would you like some cash? Oh, wow. And it wasn't a small amount of money or something like back then, I don't know, 200,000 bobos. I mean, like, do you mind taking cash? I'm like, yeah. So she came out with the vouchers, wow. opened this safe in the back of the room. Meanwhile, in the office, phones <laughs> have been cut off. Internet's been cut off. Employees are broke. And and we, you know, we got this money and, you know, we were very calm the whole time. Me and my co-director at the time. And we just sort of calmly got into the car and <laughs> behaved as if this was perfectly normal. <laughs> and all I remember is that we got far enough from the office in Wilson Airport. We were just screaming in the car. I we can couldn't imagine. believe it. It was like a miracle. I remember we rolled up back into the office in Westlands, paid everyone their salaries, went for a serious drink up. And those are the moments you have as an entrepreneur where you literally yeah. you know the hand of God comes yeah. through and saves you, you know. So, but when you look back with nostalgia, you realize, wow, those are really some, you know, interesting moments where, you know, you are literally on the verge of failure and it, it just came right, you know. Yeah. With a lot of your clients in the early days and even today, actually, I'll say, is there a lot of educating you have to do? Yeah, I think the nature of the work that we do, because, you know, being digital from the very get go, first of all, it's always evolving, it's always changing, sometimes quite dramatically. And you find that in every iteration like nowadays people are really talking about web 3.0 you know we're now mm. beyond 2.0 when we were more of a web agency we built the business to almost near perfection to build websites yeah mm. we were slick and good at it and then mm. back in i think it was 2007 8 this thing called social media started happening and we were completely unequipped mm. to deal with this new transition and I think what I've learned along the way is that there's this element of educating the client, but you too must become a practitioner yes. and learn what the new platforms and the new methodologies of the day are. And I think from a marketing standpoint, I'm learning that more and more that, you know, before you'd find senior managers in marketing in particular would sit on this ivory tower and delegate certain things within the digital space. But I'm thinking that more and more we need to be practitioners across the board. Yeah. We need to learn the inner workings of what we do in this digital space so that we can be effectively able to lead it uh, into the next practices. So how do you, as Moses, stay on top of, you know, the digital trends? And I think for me, a lot of it is from doing, right? So what that means is that, you know, like right now, you know, when you look at, let's say, the podcasting space, you have to create a podcast. You have to learn what it's like. If you want to understand how stories work or reels work, you have to do so it. So do you do all that? Yeah, I double. You, have you done a TikTok? Uh, not yet, but let's just say I understand the platform. And right. also on behalf of our clients, we do some of this work. 
But I believe that more and more in this space, you have to learn. And then there's so many beautiful resources online, podcasts where there are thought leaders who are sharing insights and yeah. inputs on this. So a lot of content now I consume via Audible and also podcasts. But also there's a lot of stuff on YouTube that teaches you this. There's a lot of free programs that you can learn these skills. And also many of these things, unless you do them, you can't really translate that into ability to do it for your client. Yeah. So we That's find true. ourselves having to become practitioners to actually become competent at it and more importantly be able to then translate that value to our customers. So what would you say is a podcast that you really like, you listen to quite often or you'd recommend to others? Well, there's so many. Right now, I'd say one of my staples is Gary V. I listen to his podcast quite regularly. Who is he? Gary V is what I'd call one of the most practical, pragmatic, digital marketing stroke digital experts in the world, right? So he comes from a standpoint of not hypothesizing and so forth but really from doing and he's got an incredible track record so I follow him quite diligently there's this guy called Steve Bartlett who used to run a digital agency called uh, Social Circle in the UK mm-hmm. he's got an amazing podcast there's the DigiDay podcast so if you're into digital yeah. media uh, DigiDay podcast I find I like quite that excellent well. yeah. yeah the list goes on and on I mean there's so many uh, brilliant podcasts out there absolutely so what does marketing in a digital world really mean to you, especially this time that we are living in? And I say this from, you know, we have, like you mentioned, marketers who are generalists and then we have marketers who are specialists. Yeah. So should those be converging now? What does marketing in a digital world mean to you? First of all, I've always felt and increasingly so that marketing is not mutually exclusive, meaning that we need to kind of use all the arsenals together. We need to bring everything to work together in unison. So if you have a billboard, you know, do you make sure there's a URL or a call to action or a QR code that allows somebody yeah. to interact with so it. So no dead ends. It's all no dead, connected. All connected. Correct. Because you see the different connection points. When I think about that visually, I mean, there are definitely moments when I discovered a product or an offering or an offer by seeing a billboard. I mean, as yeah. much as I'm a digital marketer and we're always sort of fighting for the digital cause, there are these moments when you realize, you know, traditional media has its place. Absolutely. And and more importantly, we need to kind of try and understand how we can overlay uh, digital technologies and methodologies onto some of these platforms so they work in unison. Uh, the other thing I think we need to appreciate during the pandemic period is that we now have what I'd call a digital first consumer, meaning that people who are kind of apprehensive or possibly digitally illiterate pre-pandemic are now very much in that space because that's how they were shopping online. The kids had to learn from school online. Um, they were told to work from home. They Many people got their own full-time internet connection in the home for the very first time because of yeah. the pandemic. So we have this new digitally accelerated behavior. And I think the modern consumer today is much more digitally competent than we, than we previously were able to achieve, to appreciate and what that means is that you know from a marketing standpoint is that we now have this wonderful opportunity to use digital from a marketing standpoint in truly interesting ways that weren't possible before think about the e-commerce um, opportunities where customers now are much more literate or comfortable using digital platforms meaning that doing transactions online is now very very familiar yeah so with that new understanding and new perspective i tend to think that um, marketers need to sort of evolve their approaches. We have this new, you know, digitally uh, competent customer. I think another thing that's come to the fore now is the element of privacy. We have the laws in Kenya. We have co- the issue of consented data. 
So platforms like Google and Facebook and yeah. Apple are now changing that game. We must be much more digitally aware about whether we're crossing the right lines or not. But more importantly, I think possibly for the very first time, almost globally, digital has become front and center of everything. Yeah. And just going back to e-commerce, so you were a very early adopter into e-commerce. You worked at OLX. It was, well, it was De- Dealfish, Dealfish at the time. Yeah. At the time. Yeah. Right. What do you see as an e-commerce opportunity right now in, in Kenya, in Africa? I think e-commerce for the very first time in Africa feels real. I mean, we were evangelizing this stuff back in the early 2000s when I was working at companies like Africa Online and 3 Minds here in Nairobi. But for the first time, it feels very, very real, meaning that at scale, e-commerce is happening. And sometimes e-commerce in the context of people posting stuff on Instagram and giving you a phone number where you can make a payment using mobile money is still a form of e-commerce. It is, social commerce. Not rocket science. I mean, it actually works. And, And we're seeing more and more people even using platforms like WhatsApp for this. And I think the thing that we need to pay attention to as brands, DTC, uh, e-commerce is very important because I see an opportunity where as data now becomes sort of the main way of engaging consumers, data is incredibly important. Cookies, the ability to track people online is going away. So first party data is critical in an e-commerce context, meaning that you want to have the phone number, you want to have the email address and you want to have a direct connection. So yes, while it seems short term easy to build on other people's platforms, including, of course, platforms like the one I used to run at uh, Dealfish, having an e-commerce platform where you can sell directly to customers as a brand, as a business has never been more important. Yeah. So I know you, you, you worked at a marketplace, an e-marketplace. There's also on-demand platforms. Uh, I think there's been a huge rise on on-demand platforms. If we look at uh, during the pandemic, people ordering food, drinks, what have you. And then, But the interesting one you're talking about is direct-to-consumer. So you're saying where a business is actually selling direct to the consumer. Absolutely. How feasible is that for businesses in Kenya? It's become a lot easier, to be honest, because there are all sorts of companies now on the ground that are providing all the building blocks. So, for instance, when it comes to logistics, you have companies like DHL, uh, Sendy. Yeah. Uh, you have companies like Wells Fargo offering uh, e-enabled products that allow you to integrate directly into your website. You have, um, on the payment side, there's a whole host oh, of companies, yeah. Pesapal, yeah. Cellulant, um, DPO, all of them are providing very easy ways of providing transactions um, and what I'm seeing really is that you know all the pieces are there and of course developers and platforms where you can build your, yeah. you know even spot even uh, Shopify works in Kenya yeah. now you know even if it, when you think about the last mile delivery logistics in I think we have something very unique in 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 East Africa and in a lot of African countries is the independent motorbike rider the Boda Boda exactly and I know everybody has their guy the, their Boda guy who they you know saved number on the phone yeah. you call him I need this go get this for me or I've ordered this bring it to me do you see that as a space that you know we should really formalize or really take as part of the ecosystem for the D2C I think we need to leverage what works already, meaning that you know even small merchants can have the border guy doing most of the logistics. Yeah. But more importantly, um, we're seeing through companies like Glovo and others that they're harnessing the same talent, the same people on the ground to they do the are. logistics. Yeah. They're giving them scale. Uh, yeah. They're giving them opportunities to connect to consumers as and when they need those services. Um, but I think it's going to exist at all levels. You know, whether it's going to be institutionalized through companies like DHL all the way down to an individual border guy working with a number of independent uh, e-commerce merchants. Yeah. The last uh, bucket on e-commerce, because we talked about e-marketplaces, on-demand, D2C, is the B2B side of of e-commerce. Where do you see that going? Do you see opportunities? Have you worked in that space? 
the B2B side is one that I may not be very familiar with, but I think one of the big opportunities, and I don't want to sort of start geeking out here, but, you know, the idea that we can, you know, connect systems to each other. So there's something in our technology parlance we call APIs or application mm-hmm. programming interfaces, but basically creating uh, architectures and technology platforms that can interface with one system and another. So for instance, somebody orders from your platform yeah. and then it automatically triggers a uh, request for a border border guy to pick it up from a location on Sendy and that comes to you. So I think in the future it's going to be really building those interfaces and interconnections so that from a B2B standpoint, everything works seamlessly. And I think down the road um, with sort of um, business intelligence, being able to then anticipate demand, being able to see the entire picture of what's happening on the ground. And I remember yeah. when I was at Dealfish, we had some very interesting trends we noticed. For instance, that when you are buying a car in Kenya, because we had so much data on our marketplace, right. we discovered that you know maybe 10 cars of the exact same model came on the same ship, but they've been sold in different towns in Kenya. And when you have all that data on the system, you could start seeing the price arbitrage. And you start to understand that, for instance, that the cheapest place to buy a car at one point we discovered was in Maua in Kenya because we had all that data in one platform. And when you start having that bigger picture of what's happening in the back end, that's why Uber is so incredibly valuable and other platforms because they're able to aggregate all those data points into one platform. So I think from a B2B standpoint, you start to sort of get that intelligence and and, and sort of... um, the data science behind it and seeing what works and what doesn't work. And, and then if you have on. also a D2C platform, yes. those two together can, you know, that's a lot of, like you're saying, the first party data will really help. You know, I know at, at EABL, I've shared this story severally because we obviously, like most businesses, had to look at an alternative channel to our consumer when the pandemic hit. But we had actually been experimenting or looking at e-commerce even prior to the pandemic. So we brought consumers into a room. We had a design thinking workshop and they told us obviously what they were looking for when they want to order drinks online is convenience. They need it in 20 minutes or less, believe it or not, because it was a very spontaneous purchase. You know, you're in the house with your friends or somewhere you run out of drinks. I call my Buddha guy. He goes to the local wines and spirits. He brings it to me. So we got that data and we're like that insight and we're like, wow, that's interesting. We need to build something around that. But in the meantime, we went to one of the on-demand e-commerce partners. It was Yum that time. And we said, let's just even do an e-commerce marketing campaign and see if there's an uptake. You know, if, if will people actually click on the ad and purchase something? Yeah. And let's measure the, the return on, on sales. And we did it for a three-month period in 2019. We didn't know the pandemic was coming. It was very successful. And then it got tested again. Yeah. So do you remember in 2019 in August that we were going through the census and there's one day, one weekend where bars were asked to close down so that people could be home so that they could be counted. So again, we switched on our e-commerce again, you know, put some media behind it. And again, it was like the sales result was hockey stick. And then obviously fast forward to March 2020, we had a blueprint and plan ready to roll out our e-commerce when bars were closed again due to the pandemic. I think what I'm trying to get at is what should business leaders or marketers be thinking about today? They're known. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or in a couple of years' time. I think there needs to be a lot more experimentation. The idea that you try new things, uh, new innovative kind of practices that could potentially transform the business. Because, you know, we often talk in digital about something called the pivot. I believe that phrase became super popularized during the pandemic where businesses completely changed their model. And I think what the pandemic showed us is sometimes you have to be ready to change even if you're not ready. 
meaning that you you know you transition your model, you transition your practices very very quickly. So I think marketers, in the context of this sort of digital first situation we have, need to be willing to try the new and try and move away from the tried and proven because sometimes it can be the very basis for survival as a business. Yeah, the businesses that were resilient are already surviving and thriving post pandemic. The ones that were not ready for that sort of transition are not. So bottom line, I think, is the idea that. First of all, make sure that you're really willing to change, but also use a data-driven lens to try and understand what works and doesn't work. And I think also the heart of it, you know, being able to experiment with different variations of creative to connect to this new kind of digital consumer who's out there. So being able to try to connect to them in new creative ways as well. So the magic of the art and the science. But when you say experiment, you know, it, people, you know, shy away from, you know, taking those risks. Can you tell me a time, you know, where you actually failed bravely, you know, did something very experimental or innovative, it did not work, fell flat on your face. First of all, how did you feel? What did you learn from that? You know, what did you do next? I think one of the things that I've learned is that digital often offers a lot of promise and sometimes there's a <laughs> risk in, in, in doing things that are so cutting edge as it were. And in your perspective or mental model, you're like, this should work. Yeah. And I know actually quite recently there's an organization that we're involved with that kind of like a charitable situation mm-hmm. and we're trying to help them fundraise because, you know, during the pandemic they couldn't quite uh, do the things they normally do. Mm-hmm. And we did everything that we thought we did right. We put out the ads. We were like, yeah, we're going to reach people on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and everything. And we did all this stuff. And I don't know if it's a market environment. Maybe the creative message wasn't strong enough, but, mm. you know, we failed fantastically as in it was so bad. Mm. And, you know, you sit there and you're thinking to yourself, you know, when most of the time it works and it doesn't. Yeah. Um, and you're trying something fairly uh, new and greenfield. Yeah. And it just doesn't work out at all. And it's just very disappointing. But, you know, that's the reality of the space we work in that there are going to be, you know, strong hits and a lot of big misses as well. It's just the nature of the game. But how do you make your client or the person you know you're working with understand that this failure was not planned yeah yeah we've had certain scenarios also with some other clients in different scenarios and i think sometimes it's this opportunity to say look i mean there's always going to be some risk there's always going to yeah. be a possibility to want to work but i think the times there's some big takeaways that we discover so obviously figure out what not to do that way again yeah so figure out the you know the mistake but also at the same time uh, learning from that experience and saying, okay, if the client is brave enough, being able to, you know, ask them to try something possibly different with the same hope of achieving a, a positive outcome and see if they're willing to try that with you. And I think if you build that client-customer relationship trust uh, over time, then they will be willing to give you a second chance. Interesting you say that, the relationship. Key. Tell me more about that. How do you uh, grow relationships with your clients? You know, there's something in marketing we say. We say that a good campaign doesn't come out of a good strategy, but rather out of a good relationship between the client and the agency. Because I think what tends to happen is that we need to have honest, authentic conversations. Yeah. And be honest, also be able to tell the client when an idea doesn't make sense, if they come up with one. But also vice versa, uh, be open with the client and be able to have those difficult conversations. And a good relationship in a marketing context between client and agency is everything. Right, because a good relationship, you know, lets the creativity come through, the ambition come through, even the budgets come through. So Moses, I was once your client some years back when yeah. you were at Perform Group. Yes, and I was at Coca Cola. Yes, was I a good client? <laughs> Absolutely, because whether uh, that is not a trick question. <laughs> <laughs> I think so because I mean whether we've worked with you, I think on in several organizations on on different campaigns, and I think what I liked 
And what was very interesting about the briefs and, and so forth that we got from you was that they always tended to be a very clear sense of the expected KPIs, but also a sense of adventure, meaning that you were one of those clients where you were saying, look, I don't want to do the usual, the done and dusted. I want to do things that are different. We want to try some crazy ideas. And I think any agency or any media yeah. platform that works, you know, especially within a digital context, is being asked to kind of stretch their wings and try something different always is very exciting. Of course, there's a lot of trepidation to that. But yeah. more importantly, there's an excitement to it as well that, wow, we're going to try something different here. We're going to do something different. And there's always that risk-reward thing, you know, yeah. where you could... Sp- fail spectacularly yeah. or you could also succeed uh, as well spectacularly so working with you and I, I can't remember the exact campaign I know we did some things at Coke yeah. and I think we did some things at ABL but they were always a little bit different they were not typical briefs but yeah definitely creative groundbreaking campaigns is what I remember what campaign do you think you've seen in the last 12 to 18 months that has really captured your attention locally or globally I think locally possibly Interesting, and I'm not saying that I'm their customer or anything, but localization of the Spotify campaign. And I saw like bus stands, I saw, you know, uh, colloquial language used. And really, I love the fact that, you know, Spotify was able to kind of bring home the concept of their product, but in a very Kenyan way. And I'm very big on that because I think that contextual relevance is so critical where it can be a global, you know, significant product but making it locally relevant is so important so that was one campaign i think in recent times i've seen and i've quite liked do you have spotify do you listen to when spotify? they launched i think i installed it never used it uh-huh. i've been on apple music what? now what you've been on what apple music <laughs> uh, no, apple Moses. music let's move to spotify it's way 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 better i'm a loyal customer <laughs> of all things apple as you know and i was on um apple music a long time ago so i just kind of like stuck with it i, I kind of dabbled in spotify Moses, you're you're early adopter <laughs> but you're stuck on the, the no I'm, I'm just joking what would you say speaking of music is one of your favorite songs okay first of all let me just make a confession right I, I, I seem to be something of an Afrobeats uh, fan lately <laughs> uh, maybe it's appealing to my we are many yeah African nature open African nature but I've yeah. really been big on that and the wonderful playlists I listen to on, on Apple Music but more importantly I mean they're kind of like the staples right there's the people like your Burner Boys lately there's a wonderful lady called Thames uh, who even recently did a, a collaboration with Drake She's amazing. You've got uh, Adekunle, oh, awesome music. Of course, you know, you have your regulars like Davido and, you know, uh, Wizkid. Yeah. And that's the kind of music I'm sort of listening to these days. That's so what's the like your one-time, one favorite Burner Boys song? Uh, on the Low. On the Low. Keep it on the Low. Yeah. On the nice one. Yeah. Nice one. Good stuff. Speaking of being, you know, low, let's talk about mental health for a minute. You know, as an entrepreneur, you obviously, you know, things don't always go your way. Um, especially being in a digital, you know, marketing in a digital world, you're you're basically, you know, educating consumers and and your clients about new things. I'm sure you get a lot of rejection. What do you do to, you know, pick yourself up and, you know, brush that aside and say they're not rejecting me? I mean, that's kind of tough because, you know, as you know, a lot of work goes into coming up with digital concepts, you know, things that typically are not conventional, they're new, they're different, they're dynamic, and not everyone gets it, you know. Sometimes when you're bidding for work and, you know, obviously your agency doesn't get picked even though you feel you had the best and the strongest creative strategy or that sort of thing. I think for me what I always, in the back of my mind, realize, and especially in this part of the world, uh, being, you know, Kenya and East Africa, is I tend to always think that the glass is still, you know, half full, 
meaning that we really haven't fully exhausted the opportunities in the market. And when I use that kind of perspective, what it means is that even if the rejections are, you know, nine out of 10, there's still a massive upside or potential market that's still out there. And for me, that becomes really a mathematical game of saying, you know what, fine, we didn't win this time, but you've got to keep plugging away, maintaining the momentum and realizing, look, for everyone that you get, there's still so many more that you haven't. Oh, that's very true. And it's just a mentality of that, you know, the glass is always half full. You know, and is this something you learned from your father, who was an entrepreneur? Yeah, yeah. I mean, when he became an entrepreneur, he used to work for uh, I think a British construction, you know, consultancy mm-hmm. in engineering uh, at the coast. And of course, you know, you know, growing up there, that was at the port. And it was very clear when he lost his job because the company pulled out uh, mm-hmm. of the market and. He then had to basically was thrust into entrepreneurship. It was very evident because schools changed and, you know, breakfast was no longer a nice, fancy breakfast, very basic. Mm. As a child, you kind of wondered what's going on, you know. And I remember him working and, you know, leaving before all of us in the morning, coming home late at night and, you know, doing the grind, so to speak, you know, because we're a family of six children. And uh, for me, what is very interesting is, you know, obviously in hindsight, I look back and I remember that, he put in a lot, a lot of work, but yeah. more importantly, um, he became very successful in what he did. And yeah. I saw the, you know, that trajectory of you know, that success and benefited obviously from it. But for me, I think the inspiration that came out of that is that you know, there was this template or roadmap I could follow, this blueprint yeah. that if you put in the work and you work well at it and you do what you love, because he loved his work. You know? I mean, I remember growing up on construction sites you know, in the mornings before school or getting picked after school and he'd be stopping by his locations to see what was going on. But more importantly, this you know, blueprint that I could follow that you know, if you work hard, and you follow what you enjoy doing or what you're into, then usually the reward follows eventually. And of course, he was very happy. He was very satisfied in his work. So for me, that was almost a blueprint that I followed for my own. What would you say is, you know, the next evolution in digital? I'm, I'm trying to read into the future through your mind. I think the thing that I'm sort of seeing more and more of is one very simple thing. I call it the story. Right. Yeah. Everything is about the story. It's the reason why I'm Apple addicted. It's why my running shoes will always be Nikes, you know. And I think that brand <laughs> Moses, story. Moses, we're going to Kosana now. <laughs> it's all Nike, <laughs> you know, and, and, and it goes on and on and on. But I think there's a very interesting thing I'm seeing around the digital space. I mean, obviously, social audio, you know, yeah. the Twitter spaces, the clubhouses, you know, is kind of reinvigorating radio. But more importantly, I'm seeing a very strong convergence between content and commerce. And if you look at what's happening globally, is that yeah. content platforms are now building native commerce platforms. And I think that's going to be a very interesting moment for brands because if the story is strong and you combine that with the commerce and overlay it onto digital, then the brands that tell the strongest stories are going to drive the best commercial outcomes. And for me, I think that's going to be huge. So it means that down the road, you'll see a media house becoming a major player in selling retail. Uh, you will see retail yeah. players also investing in content businesses. So the convergence of content and commerce, I think, is going to be massive. Very well said. Thank you so much for, for being here, for speaking to you. It's always a pleasure. I love these conversations we have when we bump into each other, and I'm glad we could share this you know, with the rest of the world. And so. thank you for having me here. Uh, where there, it's always a pleasure, and I think you're always a big, big inspiration to me too. Given where you've been in the last ten, you know, ten, twelve years that we've known each other, and yeah, I also want to encourage you to keep this podcast up, keep us conversing, and you know, looking forward to the next one. Thank you.